0: Hello folks and welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host Simon Ward and each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance. This week my guest is Dr. Josie Perry and we're chatting about her new Audible book The 10 Pillars of Success which by the way is available for free on Audible and there's a link in the show notes below. Uh, Josie has interviewed many elite athletes in putting this book together, but as you'll hear, these concepts apply equally to my high-performance human concept and to you in your everyday life. It's a great conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. So let's crack on and start chatting with Josie. Welcome to the show, Dr. Josie Perry.
1: Hiya.
0: It's lovely to see you. Ten years, we decided in our pre call chat, didn't we? Since we uh, were last in physical contact on a training camp in Lanzarote, I think.
1: Yeah, it feels even longer ago now. We haven't really trained and raced and done all of that cool stuff in a while.
0: No, but you've uh, you've been making progress, writing books, getting onto the mainstream media, getting yourself out there. Um, who have you been working with recently since you published your new book? Which we should perhaps tell everybody about first.
1: And yes, yeah, so, because I can never talk about who I work with. As, oh, okay. um, as psychologists, uh, we have really, really strict confidentiality rules. So um, it might be frustrating when you're talking in the media because people want to know who you've worked with, but we offer full confidentiality. We don't even say the names, let alone anything we would ever talk about with with our clients
0: but I did see you did something with Dion Dublin the other day I know you were tweeting <laughs> about that so that's probably he's probably not a client you were presenting it's, with him weren't you there
1: yeah we went to it was brilliant we went to a primary school uh, near Birmingham and we worked with 90 year six students on giving them a confidence class Um, it was actually really good fun and it was like they're 10 year olds and you're like my god the, the the world is safe with that in their hands they were so confident they were so cool they had such brilliant ideas and you ask a question and like literally every hand in the audience goes up you're like oh I love working with kids that age
0: I suppose when you're that when you're that age as well you don't have the fear of if I ask the wrong question you just ask it anyway and so it's it's sad in a way that 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 fearlessness is sort of taught out of them as they get older and learnt out of them. So by the time they get to 17 or 18, nobody wants to put their hand up in think they say the wrong thing.
1: I'd say it's even younger than that, actually. I'm I'm really surprised. I wrote a book over lockdown um, called I Can, The Teenage Athlete's Guide to Mental Fitness. And that was because I see so many kind of, even 11, 12-year-olds, that have got actually quite high performance anxiety Mm. and real fears about judgment and who's going to be talking about them and worried they're going to do the wrong thing. Um, So I actually think it starts probably just as you're starting high school, really.
0: Mm. I had a call with um, a guy called Rob Schlemacher, actually. Uh, last week he was the inventor of VASA Trainer, the swim bench. Right. And we we were talking about this thing about public opinion. And he said, I think he quoted Henry David Thoreau. So, and I'm I may get this wrong, but it was something along the lines of public opinion is nowhere near of about you, is nowhere near as you as as high as your own as your own opinion of yourself.
1: Most definitely. Um, everybody is worried what everyone else is thinking about them. And most people are only thinking about themselves and worried about what everybody else is thinking about them.
0: Mm, um, yeah. How many people do you get that that are worried about DNFing in a race because they're worried about they're actually more worried about what other people think? And yet nobody really cares, do they?
1: No, not all. And even I notice a lot, not necessarily in triathlon, but in some of the other sports I work in, that younger athletes will stay in the sport a lot longer than they're enjoying it. Mm-hmm. because they're known as the tennis girl or the football boy, and they've built up that whole identity about mm-hmm. who they are. They don't really enjoy the sport anymore, but that's who they are, and that's what the way people think of them. Mm-hmm. And so they feel there's nothing else really to go and overtake it, so they kind of stick with things a lot longer than they should.
0: Yeah, that, that identity thing, I've, I've seen that in older triathletes as well who've been doing the sport for a long time, they are perhaps known in their circle of friends as mad bob the triathlete you know he does yeah. all those crazy endurance events and i think some people kind of get off on that sort of having this sort of um unique individuality that nobody else has because most people talk about playing five a side football or playing golf and there's oh no but this mad bob the triathlete he's the he's the he's the standout one in the group and when they can no longer do that Again, they, back to the child there, they they no longer feel like they fit into the, the group, do they? And, and then that causes them some, a lot of you know mental mental health issues, I think.
1: Yeah, so that happens particularly if we get injured or we start to fall out of love with what we're doing or we find we're just getting slower and slower and we really don't like that side to our sport. It can feel very hard to take the next step. So I really like to see athletes of any age who've got three or four different things that really matter to them. Mm. Um, I loved seeing that um, Alistair Brownlee this weekend went to the National Gravel Championships. Mm -hmm. It's like, I love the idea of having different kind of elements that you can go to so that when one area isn't going brilliantly, you've got something else. You don't just feel like you failed because and you're a failure because one area isn't going brilliantly at the time.
0: Well, well, Alistair's been posting probably for the last 18 months, particularly during lockdown. He, he got a gravel bike from Scott, and he was posting some of the photos of him riding over some of the um, gravel trails in, up here in Yorkshire. And I know a couple of weekends ago, he went to do this race in, um, around Granada in Spain yeah. called the Badlands, which is 750 kilometers. So that's like properly hardcore. I think he came sixth, despite about seven hours worth of punctures. So uh, he probably considers himself to be a seasoned gravel rider now. Yeah, that. And, you know, you, it's it's not unusual for you to see Johnny down watching Leeds United. He's a keen Leeds United fan and he also goes to watch the Leeds Rhino. So they've got a healthy interest in other sports, haven't they?
1: I love seeing that with athletes. I loved um, Tom Daly at the Olympics. It's like when we saw Tom Daly when he was tiny, when he was like 13, it was Tom Daly, the diver. You couldn't say it without the two bits together. And then you saw him this year and he's like, well, he's still obviously an amazing diver, but he's got a son and he's got a husband and he's got his knitting. (laughs) And it it feels like such a great way to show athletes. You don't have to be just one thing. And we often see that talked about in a kind of rhetoric of Mm. you must be so focused and so dedicated and you must really want it. There's even a triathlon, an endurance book about how bad do you want it? I'm like, that's really unhelpful. Mm. And let's stop talking about how bad you want it and looking at all those outcomes and look at how can you enjoy it more? Because we tend to do better when we enjoy it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also sort of have to raise an eyebrow when I'm approached by the parents of 12-year-old children saying, my son or daughter's really good at duathlon. They've been doing these races and they're way ahead of the field. And so we want them to get a coach now because we we want them to te- go to the next level. And I'm like, well... Maybe you should just let them enjoy developing first. If they like playing football and rugby, let them play football and rugby with the schoolmates. You know, if if they do cross country and they swim, they can still develop naturally. And let's see if they're still enjoying it when they're sixteen or seventeen. And then if yeah. they're still at the top of the field and they want to progress, um, th- then then we can talk about having a full time coach. But for now, let, let's just let them develop naturally. No, but I think they could be a world champion if we start now. I'm like, I wonder who's driving this.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. I was talking to. I'm a teacher this morning saying, I think sports scholarships at private schools are really dangerous because actually you're giving a child at 11 an identity that they're an athlete. And if everybody goes into puberty more quicker than them, and suddenly they're the smallest one, if actually they don't enjoy their sports so much, if they get really good at music or art or something else they want to be doing, they're stuck with this identity and this expectation from everybody else that they're the sporty one. Mm. It's very hard to escape. Yeah. So
0: Josie, let's let's talk about your latest book, The 10 Pillars of Success, because some of what's in, well, a lot of what's in there will relate to some of what we've just been talking about. So why don't we go through the 10 steps individually? We'll talk about how they relate to triathletes because that'll be most of my listeners, but also um, my listeners will be aware that I'm moving down this high-performance human path of thinking about the individual because you can't put triathlon in a separate pillar, can you, when you're an individual? It has to exist alongside your life and your work and Your role as a father or a mother or a son or whatever, and that has to live alongside you getting enough recovery in order for you to be um, performing at your best. And what I see in these ten pillars are commonalities that exist throughout all of those. And 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 it feels to me like if we had a a Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid, these things would form the base of those. And if you can actually get all of these in place first, then any cycling, running, swimming you do is going to be so much more productive than if you try to do the cycling, running, swimming and and these things are sort of a bit broken.
1: Definitely. Although what I would say is I would never expect to see someone have all 10 pillars because nobody is superhuman. It would be amazing if you could. Mm. Um, But what was really clear when I started this was I looked at all the psychological, psychological background, the evidence. I read goodness knows how many academic papers to really kind of pull together the evidence base alongside my thinking with the athletes and the high performers I tend to work with to see what those 10 pillars would be. And then when I had those 10 pillars, I did all the background research to get the evidence as to why they're good for you, how they help you succeed. But to bring it to life, I wanted to interview somebody that had each of those pillars. Mm -hmm. And it was quite clear when I started researching that people usually had like a super pillar. So it was very clear when I was looking at gratitude, who I wanted that person to be. Mm -hmm. It was very clear when I looked at internal insight, instantly I could think of that person. Um, there was one I wasn't so sure on and that was pragmatic optimism and I actually put a a tweet out and was like who is the most optimistic person you know and when i had been writing about it in my head pragmatic optimism is Tigger it's that kind of absolute bounce and um, the person that one of the people that was suggested I chatted to him and he was like my nickname's Tigger and I was like you're my guy And he was phenomenal. Literally, the producer and I walked out of that interview bouncing because he was just so positive. You've got a Tigger.
0: This was given to me by um, when I used to have my little personal training gym. Yeah. I used to take all of my towels from, you know, that the clients used. Once a week, round to the laundrette, and the lady that ran it said, "Oh, she used to call me Tigger because she said I used to bounce in up as Larry when she was on a bit of a downer. She thought I'd had half a dozen cups of coffee." And um, when she left, she said, "Oh, I've got your little present," and she gave me this little Tigger. So oh. he sits, he sits in the kitchen here, um, underneath the table, as a, as a reminder of uh, pragmatic optimism every day. So really tigger's, a na- tigger's a nickname that's been uh, that's been given to me by more than a few people.
1: Brilliant. I remember doing my very first Ironman in Zurich, which I think was about 2006, 2007. And um, I had a Tigger towel for transition Mm because I was like, right, that's how I want to remember to be when I go out on that bike. And when I go out on the run, I want to have that kind of optimism and the bounce with it. Such a good kind of metaphor um, for that kind of pillar of success. So yeah, each, each chapter is a psychological characteristic Some of us are very lucky to be born with that characteristic and you Mm. kind of have it innately, but they're all characteristics we can develop as well.
0: Well, that was one of my questions is, um, can somebody be taught to be mentally strong? I mean, not all of these are about, well, I suppose all of these, if you put them together, do equal mental strength, but you can be mentally strong without some of them, can't you? Because you just said nobody's going to have all 10. But I I do wonder about mental strength and resilience.
1: Are those two the same thing or are they different? So when I started as a sports psychologist, I talked lots about mental strength because it felt like a really good kind of marketing tool. Um, People, and I will get people all the time. My inquiries will come through with, I want more mental strength. And to be fair, I usually write back to those people and say, I'm not the psychologist for you because I don't really believe in mental strength. Mm. I believe in mental flexibility. And I think if you can have real flexibility, sometimes that will be strong. Actually, sometimes that will be saying, this isn't for me right now. I need to go and do something else. Um, so you mentioned DNFs earlier. People will really beat themselves up over a DNF. Actually, for their well-being, for their long-term abilities as an athlete, sometimes the DNF is by far the most sensible, rational, mm-hmm. good decision you can make. And yet we have this culture of, I never quit. Well, actually, sometimes quitting is a really good Option for you and you will come back and do far better because of it.
0: What, what was it? David Brent said, winners never quit and quitters never win, but people who never win and never quit are just stupid. <laughs> and I, I I sort of you can chuckle about that, but I, I do understand what you mean because you know you listen to the, the great generals say, Well, sometimes you have to back out of a battle and lose a battle to win the war, don't you? And and if and you think about being a triathlete and you want to do an Iron Man and you're your war is to qualify for Hawaii. There's going to be a few failures. Actually, are they failures? Because some people also say you need to fail fast in order to succeed. Yep. And failures are where you learn your biggest lessons. So I've never agreed with the idea that you 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 know DNFs a failure or that a DNS is a is, is a failure because I think you have to have emotional intelligence. You talked about Alistair Brownlee there. Um, you know Jack Jack Maitland and I worked with Alistair and Johnny from from when they were joined the performance. Um, talent performance squad when they were 12 and 13. And one of the things that was quickly apparent was that their emotional intelligence about situations. And they, they got that from an early age. And I, um,
1: I-, I actually quoted Alistair in the intro to this book
2: mm-hmm.
1: about, because I think he just has a great perspective over things. I can find the quote, actually. I was really impressed with it. It was from his own book. Yeah. And he said, winning never feels as good as it should. When you trudge back to your hotel room after a big race win, you close the door, look around and think, absolutely nothing has changed here. I might be sweatier. I might have champagne on my shoulders. But fundamentally, I'm just knackered. And I think that really helps us address kind of the big picture of the book Mm. about what is success. So we're all trying to get our own version of success. But we have some very rigid cultural perceptions of success
2: mm-hmm.
1: so one of the interviewees in the book for the chapter on courage was a brilliant guy called bobby holland hanton and he is chris Hemworth's stunt double in all the thor movies he's done james bond movies he's i mean the stunts he does are phenomenal but he was very clear that he used he was blunt i used to think success was money Money was going to mean I was successful. And he said, and then I had to have a back operation. And I spent six months not being able to exercise, taking too many painkillers, drinking too much. And I came out of the end of that and realized it was about being happy with family around me that loved me. And Kelly Holmes was another interviewee. And I interviewed her for the chapter on belonging. And she said, I used to think success was Olympic gold medals. And then I got two, and they're great, but they don't give you... The same feelings that I've got from running a huge fitness group during lockdown where I've built brilliant friends and brilliant contacts and I've created a community. Have you read Kath Bishop's book? The Long yes Wind? I know Kath well.
0: Well Kath, Kath was a guest on the podcast and what you're saying there seems to resonate very strongly with her book about um, firstly, when she won the silver, the commentator says, and Kath, and I think it was Kath Granger, it's only a silver for Great Britain. I'm like, oh my god, it's only a silver. We tried our hearts out like for eight years to get this. Don't don't you dare say it's only a silver. Yeah. And then you and then you get off the plane. British Airways have put all the gold medalists in first class, and everybody else is sort of asked to walk out the back as if they don't count. But when yeah. you do get a gold medal, you talk and she said exactly the same as you have that a lot of those people like feel incredible pressure and yet not much success for winning that gold medal. And and almost like Alistair's articulated there, just going back to your room and thinking, actually, see what's changed? I've got a gold medal, I'll be on TV for a few days, and then it's back to work on Monday morning at six o'clock.
1: Yeah, so a lot of the work I end up doing with athletes is about trying to change the metrics through which they measure their success. And triathlon is horrendous for this, because we have swim metrics we have bike metrics we have run metrics we have Strava uh, and
0: don't get me Zwift. started on, don't get me started on Strava well, yeah
1: um we have all of these ways to measure ourselves over things that fundamentally are not that important mm. and so I spend a lot of time uh, working on athletes values and we will look really hard of what three values are at your core if I chopped you in half and you were a stick of rock and we could see what runs all the way through you, what really matters, what are those values and how do we start to design metrics for your triathlon that match those values? Mm. Because then you know whether to be proud when you cross the finish line. And talking about that, um, the DNF thing I did, uh, the national middle distance champs a few months ago. And, um, it was horrific weather. I was not, I hadn't trained well enough for it. I shouldn't have started anyway, but I had a good swim, had a dreadful bike came off the bike. And my daughter who's four said to me, "Mummy, what took you so long? Mm-hmm. She's a bit of a stab in the heart. Um, she was soaked. They had my husband and I had blessed them had stood outside basically for five hours in the rain. And I had 13 miles to go and run and my back was in absolute agony and I could have finished and I knew I'd actually get a medal in my age group if I finished. But I had the two values of mine, one success and one is family. And it was a real kind of battle between values of, well, success would mean I finish whether I walk, whether I'm in agony, whatever happens. Family means actually I turn around, I go and pick her up and we go home because I don't want her to Mm -hmm. think about triathlon being a miserable thing you do, standing for five hours in the rain and the mud. She deserves better than that. And at a kilometre I turned around, I went back to transition and we left. And that was a real battle of values, because I also want her to to learn that you don't quit something halfway through, you -hmm. push yourself. But sometimes those values really matter to make the best decision for you in that moment.
2: Mm.
0: I mean, for me, you know, I'm, I'm in my late 50s now. So what's important to me is still being able to go out on my bike with friends in 10 or 15 years time. And I've got a few friends that are in the 70s that are, you know, I've seen a few this weekend and last weekend that are still doing triathlon in the late 60s and 70s. And those are my, you know, as much as I admire Alistair and I'm inspired by everything Alistair's done, I can't be like Alistair. I'm not going to be a world champion or Olympic champion, but there's nothing to stop me being aspiring to be a super fit 75-year-old still able to choose to rock up to a triathlon if I want. And I, I see people who go, oh yeah, God, that was slow. And I'm like, you're the only person on the start line of your age that means you're winning the game of life it doesn't <laughs> matter about your performance in triathlon because nobody else in your age category has actually managed to get this far to the start line so that's a victory in itself yeah a victory at 75 is being able to get to the pool and swim an hour isn't it you know so we have to we have to reassess what our victories are not even if we're losing our ftp and our running speed we're still able to do it and think of how many people at 75 are are just not able to even even move around freely never mind swim bike and run every week
1: yeah i'm most inspired probably by a friend of mine eddie brocklesby Mm. so she's 78 um design man as you do she does probably three times as much training as i do um that's kind of like like yeah i want to be that active i want to be able to go swimming running and cycling when i'm much older and she it's not like she has an easy life she squashes it between running a brilliant charity um but but we get that vicarious confidence from people that are a bit like us but doing really well
2: mm-hmm.
1: those people can be much more inspiring than the olympians who are brilliant but they're on a different planet to most mm. of us
0: you going back to the dnf thing uh, finally i had a um, uh, an athlete i work with he wanted to he's, he's been training for triathlon He's also been working on the front line as an A&E consultant for the last 18 months. So, you know, highly stressful. And he decided he wanted to do 100k ultra. And at, at 65k, he had to pull out because his hamstring and his glute had tightened up so much, he could hardly walk. And after a few days of reflection, he said to me, do you know what? I'm really happy about that race because I wanted to know what my limits were. And I've actually found them. <laughs> I've actually pushed myself as far as I could go. Now, how many people actually get to say that yeah. that I want to see how far I can go? Well, I've found out how far I can go and it's 65 kilometers. And if I come back in the future, I might get to 80, I might get to 100 But I'm not if, if if I'd got to 100 and thought actually that wasn't that hard, I'd have been less satisfied than having to pull out, having come to a standstill, which is a refreshing attitude, but actually quite unusual.
1: It is unusual, but yeah, really nice way of looking at it.
0: Hmm. So let, let's talk about these pillars then. So uh, excuse me if I've got them in the wrong order from your book, but I, I, this is the order I wrote down. So belonging. Now you mentioned Kelly Holmes and belonging there. I- explain how, uh, in a maybe a sense or two, how most people listening would sort of get this sense of belonging and, and maybe they could start working on that. Or, or is belonging something you can work on?
1: Most definitely. So it's probably, I would say it's one of the most fundamental pillars there's a really nice um, theory that we use a lot in motivational psychology called self-determination theory. Uh And it highlights that in order to have that kind of innate, intrinsic motivation to go and do things, we need three things in place. And the first thing we need in place is a sense of belonging. We need to feel connected to other people. We need to feel like we're not alone. We need to know there's other people on our side. And when we have that, we're able to go and perform much better. And so we'll often use it in sport, um, particularly I find for pro athletes who might not be in kind of a tra- team training environment. So if you're a footballer, you, you train with your team every day. But if you're, say, a pro triathlete, you you might live in a great place for sport, but you might not necessarily have a team of people you train with. I think they do that a little bit more in the States now where they might have endurance runners all live together. Mm. Um, Or you might be in a cycling team and you might do some training together. But often you're quite lonely. And that bit can make it very hard to keep going when you don't feel like other people are getting what you're going through.
0: So listening to what you're saying there, you talk about teamwork. And I guess for the age group triathletes listening to this, that teamwork could be your mates you cycle with on a Sunday. It could be a master's group you swim with. It could be the guys you run with. And I think over the last 18 months, at times when we weren't able to mix, or we could only mix, up, a lot of people have found that triathlon is a very lonely sport if they hadn't realised before, and perhaps that was the element they were missing and why their mojos have gone stray. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's one thing that we could try and do is if, if is explore well working out with other people if you've lost your mojo and just get a bit of fun back in. Um,
1: Social media can be good for that. So there are many, many bad things that come with social media, particularly (laughs) as an athlete with all the comparisons, Mm. but it can be a very good way of finding your tribe. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And we found that particularly with lockdown where you weren't near other people, um, but it also might be that actually your tribe of people, there aren't that many of you. So social media can help you find those people very well. And actually I think that's one of the reasons Zwift was so popular over lockdown Mm. and grew I have no phenomenally because it was a way of connecting with other people. It wasn't like you were just sitting in your garage on the bike, feeling a bit silly. You were racing other people and you could get the high fives and the others. I I don't use it enough to know all these. Um, But I think that helped with that connection. And so if you're feeling disconnected and you're feeling like you've lost your mojo purposely trying to work out where you can find connections with other people, and build up that sense of belonging is really important.
0: My next-door neighbour rode with a group of guys um, through Zwift, but in their own little group, and they use Discord. So, you know, quite often on a Saturday morning in the winter when the weather wasn't so good, I'd be going out to get my bike and I could hear him chatting away with all his mates and having a right old yeah. laugh. And I thought yeah. that was that was really cool because, you know, on a Saturday morning when the weather's not good, hadn't you told you have got to lock down? I mean, what could make you feel more miserable about life? Um, but it, it seems to me then that that team sense of belonging comes back to harmony Now, that's not one of your 10 pillars but often when I talk to athletes and coaches they talk about harmony and those athletes that perform best have balance in their life and harmony and happiness
1: it's interesting you say happiness because actually one of the interviewee a lot of the interviewees said they thought success was happiness and then they'd actually draw back a bit and go no, maybe it's not happiness it's contentment mm-hmm. Because happiness, to feel happiness, you also need to feel sadness. You need to feel, you need to be able to compare it with something. Whereas contentment, maybe that A&E consultant you were talking about, can be content that actually really pushed, really tried hard and found out. So I would say probably the closest chapter to that is actually gratitude. Mm. And the interviewee I used for gratitude, there was no thought whatsoever. It was obvious. Um, And I went to Lucy Gossage because (laughs) the way I've raced against her a couple of times. So we know each other a little, but the way she comes across is just full of gratitude that she's got a body that allows her to go out and do these amazing things. And her, her day job is as an oncologist and she works with young people dealing with a horrible disease. Mm. And she would talk about how, and she'd have to go and do her long runs at eight o'clock at night after clinics on very dull ring roads around Nottinghamshire because it was the only place safe and light enough to do it and he'd be like oh how could you do that she was like because the whole time I was thinking I get to do this Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and that attitude that sometimes we can see with people in triathlon of oh I've got to do this today Mm
2: -hmm.
1: when you turn it into I get to do this today it becomes so much more positive positive. And it's a, I am really lucky. My body allows me to do this. I've got some genes and physiology that allow me to do it well. And I get to do this other amazing stuff on the side. And we mentioned earlier about having different identities. I think that can be really valuable because if her training goes badly, she's got her day job. If her day job is a really difficult, horrible day, then she can go and lose herself in her running and work through it. Mm. So so I would say probably gratitude is closest to that harmony. And it's one thing I will say to athletes when they're struggling, before you go to bed tonight, either say to yourself or your partner, one thing you are grateful for today, mm-hmm. you finish the day on a high.
0: I read Tim Ferriss's book, Tools of Titans, a few years ago. I don't know if you've read that book. Yeah. And that was a, a summary of 200 of his books podcast guests uh, across a whole range of spheres, but probably high performance humans from media to the arts, to sport, to politics and and military. And I was quite surprised about the number of those people who, despite having lives that most of us look at and say, oh, they're really busy, found time in their lives to keep a gratitude diary, whether that was formally writing something down every morning or informally just saying prayers and um, expressing their gratitude internally. Um, a lot of them were also involved in some sort of some sort of mindfulness and meditation or or prayer on a regular basis and yet and again they found time to do that whereas most people say I don't have time because I'm too busy so again what's important in your life and how practicing that gratitude on a daily basis seems to um, seems to put everything else into perspective
1: it does and it was the chapter when researching I'd say would surprised me the most mm-hmm. for the huge benefits it brings simple things like people who have more gratitude live longer mm-hmm. they recover quicker from operations they they get healthier quicker there were so many elements and maybe it's that you're able to see things more positively because you're always putting that positive spin on things but it, that one really surprised me and they earn much more money if, if you want a really callous, blunt one for it, um, actually had much higher. They would measure gratitude levels of people in the university, and then they go and check on them 10 years later and see mm-hmm. what they were earning, and they actually earned more. So um, the gratitude and I think the optimism would really surprise me because you'd see them and you go, yeah, that makes you feel happier. You live a nicer life if you have that perspective. But actually, there's some kind of cold, hard facts about mm. you do have a better life. You earn more you recover quicker from the tough stuff.
0: I I read, I can't remember where I read this, but um, it was about a couple who were having a hard time. The husband was not enjoying life with his wife and he'd had some counseling and the counselor says, well, there must be things you like about your wife. There must be things that you are grateful for. Why don't you start thinking about those the positive things? Go home every day and write one thing. Do you love about your wife? And so he did. And six months later, he said the marriage had never been better because he realized there was so much more about his wife that he loved. But he was just focusing on these one or two things every day that really upset him. And when he started focusing on the positive stuff, those things just paled into the background.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting, actually. Um, Kath Bishop, who you mentioned, uh, put something, I think, on Instagram today. And it was a, qu- a quote, I think, from Einstein. He'd been teaching a class and he'd put up the nine times table on the blackboard. And he'd got one to eight or one to nine, right? And then 10 times nine, he'd got incorrect. And the whole class pointed out what well, he'd done wrong. And nobody pointed out the nine sums that he had got right. And we we absolutely do that in life. Um, and often we do it with ourselves for a very, mm-hmm. our, our brain's job is to keep us alive. So our brain's job isn't to be a high performing human. It doesn't really care about that. It cares that we stay alive and it will do whatever it takes to keep us alive. And often that is remembering the negatives very strongly so we don't don't go and do them again and put ourselves at risk. So we are kind of attuned to remember those negatives very well. And so we have to be very proactive to come up with the positives and to remember them.
2: Mm.
1: So one of the things um, Dion Dublin and I did with these year six students the other day was we gave them all little little glass jars and 10 tiny sheets of paper. And they had to write 10 of their strengths in them. And then they might do it for their friend. And they would write down 10 things they were really good at, 10 things they liked about each other. And then you actually collect almost like an alternative brain. So not that negative one, but you've got your own one that you can go and look at.
0: Hmm. Lovely. I've spoken a lot with, with clients about gratitude and ask them if they've tried and they go, oh, I don't have any time for that airy fairy stuff. We? Just try it for a little bit and see what happens. Give it a week. Give it a week and see how your outlook on life changes, whether you whether you've got a different perspective on stuff. Just just one morning, get up and look outside and think, what am I grateful for today? I'm grateful that the sun's shining. I'm grateful, actually, I have a house with a roof over my head. I'm grateful that I can put food on my table. It doesn't have to be anything super powerful. It can just be something simple, like I'm grateful yeah. that I am, you and I are able to have this conversation, Josie, and talk about these amazing things. You know, um, There's so much in our lives to be grateful for that if we focused on those, life would become a lot rosier. It would be as, it would be as sunny and as happy as my day outside.
1: It does look beautiful outside. And what's also interesting is that the benefits of gratitude last quite a long time. Mm. So you may do it for a couple of weeks, but you'll still be feeling the benefits months later.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's definitely not an airy-fairy thing. It's it surprised me by how valuable it can be.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I like two of your pillars, mastery and process. Yeah. Now it seems to me that the most successful people focus on doing things better. And focusing on the doing the simple things, getting the basics right, yes. and where I see a lot of recreational athletes probably more focused on outcomes and the results. But of course, the result is the is actually the summation of all of those processes, isn't it, to create the outcome? But yeah. sometimes the out, you know, sometimes the outcome is beyond your control. If somebody else has a better race than you, there's there's nothing you can do unless you're going to cheat or physically stop them. So the,
1: the outcome is usually always beyond your control so so many athletes will say I want to I want a podium at the national champs they'll come with that that would be their goal and you're like okay well what happens if the Brownlee brothers decide that they're going to race that weekend because they've got nothing else on they need to tune up for this uh it doesn't matter what training you've done they're going to push you down the results list what happens if You get a cold the week before and you cannot push your heart rate to the level that you need it to go. And you'll go through a lot of those what ifs and we'll come to an agreement that Mm. what's what what would help them feel as successful as podiuming? It could be like the one where I had it, the English National Champs for half Ironman distance, that there were so few people in my age group that I could have walked the run and still got a podium. Well, that wouldn't have. I mean, it would look nice to have another medal and it probably sounds good on your race CV, but it doesn't actually mean anything because you know you didn't have to work hard for it. You know you didn't have to push yourself way outside your comfort zone. So we try and take it back to actually look at your values. What really matters to you? How? And often they'll come back with, I want to feel proud when I cross the finish line. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then we're like, right, what makes you feel proud? So you'll often draw those outcomes back into things that are much more within their control they're often a bit harder to measure because they're not a time or a place, but they're much more substantial. Um, and so we talk about focusing um, on the target and not on the trophy. Mm. And so everything is pulling it back down to how do I focus on just what I need to do now on those processes mm-hmm. and forget about that thing that might come at the end of it. Cause I can't control that. It's a complete waste of energy to focus on the outcome.
0: Well and of course, if you become a master, and we all have the ability, don't we? We we yeah. could be we could all be world champions at the process. We might not be world champions in the truest sense that we're the fastest, because again, there is some genetic, um, there's some genetic contribution to that, you know, choosing that the, the old thing about choosing the right parents. But but no. there's no but there's no reason why we can't display an Olympian um attitude towards process and mastering that process and Repeating something time and again. And, and it always feels like when you have done that, you can have confidence in your preparation. And generally, the most, the least anxious athletes on the start line, at least as far as I've observed, is the ones who have confidence in their preparation. And that's regardless of whether you are standing on the start line of Ironman or sitting at the table waiting for your maths exam to start. If you've prepared, you're confident. And if you're unprepared, you're anxious.
1: Yeah. And a really key part of that is reminding yourself of that preparation mm-hmm. so any athlete that starts working with me i ask them to keep a physical training diary so training peaks are lovely um, but it doesn't have the depth of information that helps a psychologist and helps you think mm-hmm. differently about your sport so it's helpful to see that you did x running next time but actually i want to know. What kind of thoughts were going through your head at that point? At what kilometre did you want to quit? At what kilometre did you bounce back? Um, what uh, what niggles did you notice? Because actually we want to be able to spot patterns in things. What strengths did you notice? Because we want to be able to get you right ahead of a race We'll do a confidence booster and we want to look back through your diary and go, what strengths are you bringing to that race? What sessions can you put in there?
0: In defense of training peaks, I would say that there is a section in there called post activity comments where, and, and you can write as much as you like in there, but most people. I would say, because I, I experience this too. And I, as a coach, I'm often saying, you know, that only tells me what you did, how far you went, mm. how long you ran for, what time of day you ran, what heart rate you ran at. It doesn't tell me anything about, if you did that run last week, how did those two compare? Did you feel great last week? Did you feel rubbish this week? All of those things, the subjective stuff. And so we've got, it's a bit like looking at um, uh, a house, isn't it? Just looking at the front and not seeing the sides or the back and yes. seeing actually there's nothing there. It's just a facade. And then when you... When you add in the subjective comments as well, and you say, oh, hold on a minute, there's a bit of depth behind that, and you understand that's where the niggle started, then you often trace that back. So that's that's good for other practitioners as well, because the physios can use that to trace it back yes. to an injury. We can use it to trace it back to an illness. Um, and then if we put the metrics, and we see the metrics, and we see that their stress levels have been high, and their sleep levels, their sleep quantity's been low, and their sleep quality's been poor, then we can start to build a bigger picture And we can start to get a sense of what's going on and ask the right questions. And that's what we need to do as professionals, isn't it? Is asking the questions to get context.
1: Yeah. And the more information there, the better, because you can spot those patterns. Um, You can spot particularly strengths, because sometimes people will feel very humble about or I'm not really very good at that. It's like, actually, let's pull this apart because you're doing it jotting it down day after day, you can start to notice those things. When you can see sessions, I'll often ask an athlete to name one session they did that week as their gold medal session. What is the session that makes you kind of go, oh, I'm moving on here. I'm I'm feeling a bit of progress. Um, They don't do it beforehand. They do it afterwards with, how did you feel about that session? That was the one I was flying. I felt like an Olympian for the first time. Um, And we label those gold medal sessions so that when when it comes to a big event, You've got specific sessions to remember that make you go, Yeah, I nailed that treadmill session. I'm going to be okay on this. And we really want to be able to pull out that preparation you did. So it's really clear in front of you, This is how I prepared for it. This is what I work towards.
0: And I would say there that most people think as they're listening to that, Yeah, that was that track session where I did 10 800s and I, and I ran a PB and all of them. But actually, it could be the two hour bike ride where your coach said to you, I, d- I don't want you to go above this heart rate. I want you to. Stick to this, regardless of whether somebody you don't know goes riding past you and you want to prove to them you're fitter. Even if you're feeling super strong on that hill and you can push it, you're going to hold back and show some um, intensity discipline. And then you get back and go, do you know what? My coach asked me to do this and I nailed it 100%. Yep. And, it, and it was an easy session, but I, and I could have lost control and, and got diverted from the aim, but I didn't. It, yes. That could equally be a gold medal session, couldn't it?
1: Most definitely. So it's a session where you finish feeling proud of yourself. So Mm -hmm. the reasons for that pride could be many, but it's we want you to be able to remember those sessions and use them as a, yeah, this is why I'm going to do well. So we talk about it not as, in the book, we don't have a chapter on confidence because we do sometimes see people who are overconfident that often comes across as arrogance. But we talk about it as cultivated confidence. And the athlete I picked for that was, it was so clear who it should be. Um, I'd actually interviewed her for the Teenage Sports Psychology book, um, a paracanoist called Emma Wiggs. Mm -hmm. And when I contacted her, I said, I want to talk to you and interview you about confidence. She was like, I'm not confident. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I was like, "Um, haven't you won like eight world championships and you're the Rio gold medalist? And she went, yeah, but I've never started a race knowing I was going to win it. I was like, really? She went, No, I mean, i sit in the boat and I know I've done more training than anyone else. I know I've asked more questions than anyone else. I know I've spent more time in the gym. I know I've eaten more cottage cheese than any other athlete has ever eaten. (laughs) And I was like, that's the difference. It's not the arrogance. It's not just walking up because when you're arrogant, you don't do all the training you need to do. Mm -hmm. You actually end up taking some shortcuts. So you still need that tiny bit of fear of, have I done enough? We don't want you overtraining, but we want you to have to really listened to your coach's advice and followed it. But then we want you to be able to sit back and go, actually, I almost, of course I want to win, but whether I win almost doesn't matter now because it's how I feel, whether I've done everything I could to get me to the start line. Mm. And I remember listening to um, Vicky Holland after Rio Olympics talking about standing on the beach and knowing it, whatever happened, happened. There wasn't that much more of it she could control, but even if she did awfully, she knew everybody in her life still loved her, hmm. and that she'd done the best she possibly could to get to that point. I well, think and that's that, so reassuring.
0: And that brings us back to belonging, doesn't it, and gratitude and everything yep. else. So the, these things are all connected, and again, going back to what I was saying at the beginning about things existing in separate pillars, that's not true. They're They're all sort of, got little
1: they all build on each other as well the web
0: yeah yes yeah
1: um because uh chapter four is called a powerful purpose and that really builds on the sense of belonging using your mastery for good knowing why you're doing things which is the autonomy um and eddie brocklesby who i mentioned earlier she's um quoted within that chapter because she did i think it was And it was an Ironman in France, not Nice. And she said it was going awfully, boiling, boiling hot. And her saddle broke. And she still had quite a way on the bike to go with a broken saddle. And most of us would have kind of gone, okay, I can't can't finish this right now. I'll do another one. She still managed to cycle standing up Mm -hmm. and then ran the marathon. Not because she wanted to be the oldest female um, British Ironwoman which is what that would make her. But because when she became the oldest British female Ironman, she would have a really good platform to talk about what really matters to her, which is older people staying active in their retirement. And she knew she kind of needed that title in order to be able to go out there and get the media coverage that was required and to be able to get other people going, oh, maybe it's possible. Mm. And that purpose bit is so powerful. But it was built on her sense of belonging to that community. Mm.
0: It, f- it feels like there's a lot of things that well, a lot of these pillars we we don't really give much thought to. They're, they're either there or they're not, and whether they are or they're not, no nobody's really that concerned because there's more important things like how many Strava thumbs up we got <laughs> and what's our FTP. But actually, going back to where we started about the foundations and putting these at the very bottom, you know, if the if you've got all of these pillars in some way and you can keep working them, because I know you said nobody's going to have all ten. Scoring ten out of ten for for each one, but that doesn't mean you can't keep working to improve, does it? Because that's the whole essence for me of being a high performance human is you you keep working on your strengths, but you also keep working on your weaknesses. And as long as you keep moving the slider or the needle in the direction you want to go, yes. that that's that's the that's the point, isn't it? Is let's try and keep moving it in a positive direction. It's like like walking to the horizon. You're never going to get there, but you can keep walking towards it.
1: That's why I like so much of my work is driven by values. So when you know your values, they're super helpful because when you're clear on what they are, you can see when they get violated, you are unlikely to perform at your best. So if a value, I see this a lot in tennis, if a value of yours is fairness and good sports personship, and you play tennis against somebody that cheats a lot, it will trigger you very quickly. You'll be into your threat zone. You will not be able to perform at your best.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you're very clear on what your values are, you can almost prepare yourself so that you don't get triggered when somebody violates them. Mm -hmm. But you can also always choose to move towards your values. Whenever you've got a tricky decision, sometimes there is no perfect answer. It's going to be two different outcomes you could choose between and neither of them are going to be perfect. You can always choose to move closer towards the value and then you always feel you're moving in the right direction. And so if you chose to make mastery a value of yours and, and it felt like, yeah, that's me, that's who I want to be. Well, then whatever decision comes about, it can always be, how do I become more masterful at this? How do I become more grateful for the things I have? So sometimes these might be your values. Sometimes there are many of my athletes will say success is a value or achievement is a value, bravery. Um, And I give them a list of about 52 different values and we work through them. But when you're very clear on them, you can always move towards them. Mm
2: -hmm. And that's
1: with these pillars. You can always think, how do I become more process driven? How do I be more optimistic? How do I get more internal insight? And then you constantly feel like you're progressing. Mm.
0: And that's it, isn't it? It's just a constant game of progress, I think. And so you're you're never actually reaching again. And we talk about that phrase, it's, it's a journey, not a destination, um, but, but it, it might be overused cliche, but it's still pretty true.
1: Most definitely. So our goals might be destinations for a moment, mm. but then you're soon going to be onto the next thing. Our values, our purpose should feel like they're much more of a general direction
2: mm.
1: um, so that we co- we always feel like we're moving in the way that feels comfortable for us and makes us feel proud of who we are.
0: So if, if somebody was going to read your book, I mean, where do, they, where do they start? Because I think that's part of the problem when somebody's given anything that's got 10 of, 10 of these, five of those. Is like, well, which one do I start with? I mean, do I start? Is, is there one that I need to start with? Do I go through them all and work out which one's my weakest? Do I, do I start with that and try to bring it up to the level of all the others?
1: An easy answer is you don't really get a choice with this because the book is with Audible. Um, and I wrote it for Audible. They commissioned it. So it's not like you're flicking through and you're picking the chapter. You hopefully you listen to all of it. Um, so within that, I guess I ask people to, you listen to them, you work out which ones you might already have. and then you you're kind of thinking through it, which one would help me more to have more of. Mm-hmm. And within the book then you have all of that background, you have the um, I guess the insights, from the people that we're featuring within it. But then there is also a large section towards the end of each chapter that tells you how to start growing that. Mm. So they are very clear ways of this is an activity you can do that will help you develop more courage to become more process driven. So it should feel quite practical that there are things you can go and do. So it might be actually there's two or three pillars you want to work on and you pick something from each. It might be that you're like, yeah, my mastery is really lacking and that's the one I am going to go off and I'm, I really want to become a master in this. So I feel more confident.
0: It, it strikes me also with, with a lot of these is that the mindfulness and awareness, because again, if you've never considered where you are on any of these, a bit like when we ask people about their diet, I'd say that 95% of the people I ask say, yeah, my diet's pretty good. And when you, when you start to dig in a little bit, you find out it's barely average. Um, and then people say, well I tried this diet and I lost loads of weight that's not because the diet's good that's just because you were thinking a little bit more about what you should be eating yes. what you shouldn't so it's it's mindfulness so thinking uh, being a little bit more mindful about gratitude, having a little bit more um thinking about a little bit more about your process and the mastery of something um th- that that in itself uh, will be a start point won't it when you actually start to consider these things actively
1: It's really interesting because. The approach I use with my clients is an approach called ACT, which stands for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Um, and kind of a key premise of that is the mindfulness of noticing your thoughts, but not responding to them. Learning that they are there, not trying to fight them the whole time, accepting them, but being really clear on our values and why why we're not going to respond to them. So they kind of we notice our thoughts, they sit there, we acknowledge them. But we also acknowledge to ourselves, this matters more. So we're going to work on this. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: However, I find many, many athletes are really resistant to mindfulness. (laughs) The thought of sitting on a chair quietly for 15, 20 minutes is never going to happen. And so we often try and find ways around that. And actually you can be fairly mindful when you're running, go Mm -hmm. for a run, don't take your watch, don't take your (laughs) headphones. Actually try and notice where your mind drifts to and what you think about. Um, Lego, I find brilliant for mindfulness because you don't focus on all the other things going on in your head. You actually start to, to get into that flow a little bit and you notice jigsaws, similarly.
0: I love jigsaws.
1: Uh, yep. Love them. Yeah. So um I absolutely don't push mindfulness on people because it tends to get people's backs up and then they switch off. Um, but I do try and find Otherwise, colouring another one. But baking as well, people can kind of lose themselves in. So it's actually helping people find activities that they get lost in, mm. where they can then start to notice their thoughts and not panicking. Oh, that's a bad thought. I mustn't have that thought. That's a negative thought. But to be able to notice it, accept it. But then we focus on what matters more.
0: So I don't know if you've ever done any of the Headspace Meditation yeah. But when you're doing the initial, the basic series that you you get introduced to, one of the um, one of the processes he he um, goes through is where you sit and you talk about your thoughts and people think it's about trying to empty your mind. And he says, well, look, just imagine you're sitting and watching the road and the cars are going past. You just go, well, that's a red car and it goes past. You're yes. not going, that's a red car, I don't like it, it's dirty. You're just like, there's a red car. Oh, and there's a blue car. That's a white car. That's a truck going past and there's a bus. You just they're just like the thoughts moving backwards and forwards. And yeah. once you once you get into this, you realize that meditation doesn't have to be done formally by sitting down. You could actually meditate while you're out running. So then I move on to Malcolm Brown, the running coach of the Brownleys, associated with Kelly Holmes and Paula Radcliffe, talks about the process of becoming a really good runner. Starts with being associated with what you're doing when you're running, running through yes. the woods, not concentrating on your pace, but just aware of the twigs and the branches and the leaves crackling under your feet, noticing the sounds of the birds, noticing the way the landscape changes and, and just getting at one with nature, not focusing on our, my, my pace isn't fast enough. My heart rate's too low. Yeah. So again, that that takes us back to process. And then if you can go through a whole run like that, all, all of a sudden you've run for 60 minutes, you haven't thought about anything else. That's when you tick that off as a gold medal session. So In that little one example I've given, it comes back to your point there about how they're all connected.
1: Most definitely. Um, And and what you're talking about with the cars there, we'll often call that thought labelling. And people are quite scared to label some of our thoughts because we don't want to think negatively or we don't want to be thinking about those things that we might fail. But actually the research shows when you do label them, it puts you in a bit more of control of them. So, and you can almost we often use a technique where you will say your thoughts out loud but in a comedy voice so you can be Minnie Mouse or Superman or whatever you think but it helps it helps you feel much more in control of those thoughts so they're not controlling you and we'll do some work with distancing yourself from those thoughts so a negative thought you might have standing on the start line is everybody else looks so much fitter than me
0: Oh, we've all been there.
1: <laughs> yeah, the big races you've gone to, and everyone on the plane is in their GB kit on the plane, which I never understand. Hmm. And they're in their compression gear for like three days beforehand, hmm. and you're just spending the whole time going, "I don't fit in here. These people are all super fit. I shouldn't be here." Hmm. Um, but actually, being able to take that step back and go, rather than "I'm not fit enough to be here," we talk about "I'm noticing my brain is telling me I'm not fit enough to be here." I'm aware, I'm noticing that my brain's telling me I'm not fit enough to be here. Mm -hmm. Suddenly it's not personal. It doesn't hurt so much. It's just a thought. and that's okay. Our brain tells us thoughts. They're trying to emphasize. And you can then see it as like something up here, just Mm -hmm. above your head, rather than inside your head and being correct.
0: Yeah, um, I did the Precision Nutrition Level 2 coaching course. And there's quite a lot of this in there about when, when you're a coach and you're working with people, it's called Noticing and Naming. Yep. So you're putting it. You're just observing something, and you're giving it a title, and it's there like a balloon with a label on it, yeah. and that's it. So if I'm noticing that you've got a pink jumper on today, I'm not. I'm not being critical about that. It doesn't mean that I like it or I dislike it. I'm just saying you've got a, you've got those um, connected earbuds in. You know, you've got uh, it looks like you've got blue paint on your walls with the sunlight behind. So you know, you've got that picture on the wall. I'm just observing and and, yep. and just saying what I observe. And you can, and that allows you to do things without being critical, doesn't it? Whereas a lot of times people say, or people think you, you've got that pink jumper on. Oh, so you don't like it? No, no, that's not what I said.
1: Yeah, and and it takes away a lot of the judgment. And when we can start to think like that, we might realise people are judging mm. us less mm-hmm. than we worry about. Too, and a huge number, particularly of the younger athletes, that I see are really worried about judgment. Mm. Um, And what people are saying about them and talking about them. And and sometimes they're right. So we're not going to take it away. Some elite athletes will see the things that are written on social media about them and they can be horrible. Um, Some people will know the WhatsApp groups that go on of people discussing other people's results. So Mm. there is judgment out there, but we want to reduce certainly how much of it you have on yourself and how much you feel that judgment matters. Hmm. So some of that is boosting your own self-confidence, but some of it is that labeling of, yeah, this is, this is that thought, but it doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just a thought.
0: So the bottom line here, Josie, is wherever you feel like your start point is, if you actively think about these 10 pillars and how they relate to you and your current situation without being judgmental, just notice a name, as we've said, and then Try to work on nudging each of them in the direction you want to go. That's progress. And we all have different start points, and we all have different endpoints. And if you start at a higher level than me and end at a higher level than me, that's, that doesn't mean you've done better. It's because we might equal it. We might both have moved on by the same amount. It's just moving forward from our start point to somewhere that takes us to a better place.
1: Yeah, and it's we're all going to have different goals. We all come into life with different entitlements, with different different values, with different genetics and family and environments and everything. So we're, everyone is starting from a different point. And one of the issues in modern life is we tend to compare ourselves with everybody mm-hmm. and forget that we're all starting from those different points. And we all have different values that are going to take us to different places. So your goal in life might, or your purpose in life might be incredibly different to mine. And when we're constantly comparing that's really unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're trying to achieve somebody else's goals, because that's what the metrics are that we've seen that look glamorous and we'd like Mm -hmm. to get those, we'll never feel authentically us and we'll never feel like we've achieved it anyway. So I guess part of it is one, accepting where we start from, not in a judgmental way. It's just very black and white. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what I'm starting from. Two is knowing where you want to go to. And that's that purpose. And then three, I guess, is using these pillars to kind of pick off what do I need to do more of that's going to help me get there and not just get there in a high performance way, but get me in a way that I feel I enjoy the journey because we tend to rush things so much when we're high performing people often have a lot of perfectionistic tendencies are often rushing through things to get there and feel it needs to be done now. And that strips out so much joy of the journey that actually I'd like to see people almost taking a step back if there was another pillar I'd have added in, it probably would have been something around celebrating mm-hmm. because I think we kind of beat ourselves up so mm. much and we just move on to the next thing. Cause we feel like we've got to get there. And I think the people that do well are the people that kind of stop, smell the roses, celebrate their successes and then see what you can learn from those to, to keep moving forward.
0: Mm. Great summary, Josie. Thank you. So, the book's not available as a book, just Audible now.
1: So it's on Audible. Um, hopefully it will come out as a book next year, um, but it was written as an exclusive for Audible and they get it for a year. Uh, okay. Yeah, so it's called The Ten Pillars of Success.
0: Well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Brilliant. And we'll share all of your other social media links that you care to uh, care to share with the world. And hopefully um, you will have a few more Audible sales.
1: Fabulous. Oh, no, it's free.
0: Oh, it's free. Well, yeah, that's even are, better, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely download it. Um, if so, if you are on Audible, it's um one of their plus um books. So anybody can download it as an additional extra.
0: Okay, well, absolutely no reason then for people not exactly. to get a copy. So I mean it's uh, Audible subscriptions free, the book's free, um, and all of these little skills that you work on are free as well. No cost involved. And uh, start tomorrow on the journey, the long journey to be a higher-performing human.
1: Brilliant. Thank you.
0: Dr. Josie Perry, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you. Thank you so much for your time today and I look forward to chatting with you again in the future.
1: You too. Bye. Thank you to Josie
0: for joining me on this week's show. There are links to everything we discussed in the show notes below. I really appreciate you listening to the High Performance Human podcast. You can join the conversation today by subscribing for free on iTunes So you never miss an episode and you can also join our high performance human podcast Facebook page Right, that's all for this week, but i'll be back in seven days time with another great guest And please remember that being a high performance human is a journey So stay healthy stay focused and just keep trying to be a little bit better than yesterday